Man, that, that song just fired me up. If that song don't fire you up, you need to take two fingers and put it on your throat right there. Just make sure that heart's a beating. You know what, in all seriousness, when I sing powerful songs like that about, man, just the, the glory of Christ, I think, I just go back, I always have, to when I was 19, you know, just a fool, and now I'm forever linked to Christ, and I didn't have one emotion in me for I walked in here this morning. Lord have mercy, I need some, take some pills or something, you know. <laughs> Calm me down. All right, so I got to preach. So here we go. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 5. We are back in the book of Hebrews after uh, taking a four-week uh, break and doing our Advent series. And I want to remind us of what our last text was. It was Hebrews 4, 11 through 16, which is a really a key thought in the whole book of Hebrews. Okay? And it goes like this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we every, in every respect have for he in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice there why we named this series Draw Near. That is the key thought in the book of Hebrews. So you'll see this morning, if you'll just glance at your Bibles, you'll see the first word in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, is the word for. And you may or may not remember that if the first word in 5.1 was what we call a hinge word, therefore, we would be expecting immediately after that application to the text. But since the hinge word is for, the writer of Hebrews is telling us there's an argument coming, that he's going to give proof for an argument that he's been making all the way back since we were in Hebrews chapter 1. Remember? The argument was this, Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. He is the creator of heavens and earth. He is better than Moses. He's been telling these Jewish Christians he is better than Joshua. And so what the writer has done is he is, in these first four chapters, he has compared and contrasted, if you would, Jesus with all the major Jewish spiritual leaders. And the conclusion has been Jesus is better, no doubt. It's not even close. So this morning what he does, he turns his sights, if you would, on Aaron, the high priest of Israel, to make the same argument that Jesus is greater than him as well. Now, a little side note here that I didn't know, or if I, I knew, I forgot because I forget a lot of things, but I didn't know Hebrews is the only book of the Bible that actually uses the word high priest to describe Jesus. Now, Paul in Romans 8 mentions it. He doesn't use the word high priest, but he says Jesus is interceding for us or making an intercession for us. So when you and I hear the word high priest, I don't know about you, but that thing goes right over my head, right? Whew. Meaning, I, I, I got images, 
I got this guy in a big old robe and a big old thing on his head, and he's carrying this device, and smoke is coming out, and he's humming, hum, hum, right? We all got images. I'd love to hear some of yours. Text me, okay? But to this group of Jewish Christians, here's what we need to understand. The high priest was a big deal. And as we'll see this morning, it is very relevant to us. Don't, so don't dismiss it. The context of Hebrews sets this whole conversation up he's going to start having here in chapter 5 and 6 and 7. And here's the context. The writer of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish Christians. They are discouraged, depressed, and intimidated. And they're about to deconstruct or hit eject and return to their Jewish roots of worship. They for sure are being persecuted. We've talked about that. Christ has not returned, right? He, he hasn't returned yet now, and he had, certainly hadn't then. And the more and more Gentiles are coming into this Jewish church. And folks, Gentiles were raw, non-religious people. They were so, uh, if anything, the Jews were at least cultured a little bit in terms of religiosity. But the Gentiles were, man, you think 1 Corinthians. Go back and see what kind of folks were going there. So they're not at all like them. They're feeling threatened. They're feeling tempted to give up. And their old Jewish friends come along and start chirping to them. Chirping to them saying things, man. And this new religion you got, you don't have a high priest in this new faith of yours. You have no one to represent you. Because think about it. In the Jewish faith, it was an incredible, wonderful thing to have a high priest to represent you. The high priest was a big deal. Someone very tangible that you could see. You could speak to them. Someone that represented the holiness of God to you and for you. They had their fine robe on, a breastplate set with 12 stones engraved in it with the 12 tribes of Israel. They could offer sacrifices and they could offer real tangible blood of animals. You, you could watch this high priest going to the temple, to the Holy of Holies, and you knew he was going in on your behalf and on the behalf of your family. You knew he would pour out that blood of a slain goat on the altar and then pray for you. And when he came out, because God didn't kill him because he did it all right, you knew in a very real way that your sins were forgiven for one year. This was a great encouragement. Can you feel that? Can you feel that tension? So this community of Jewish Christians are feeling that something very tangible, if you would, is missing because they have no one, as they've always had in their history, to plead their case before God. So the writer of Hebrews goes, no, no, no. Oh my gosh, you do not understand. You not only have a high priest, he says you have a great high priest, one that is far superior than any Jewish high priest. And the bottom line for them these new Jewish Christians, and us, is that in order 
as a Christ follower, for us to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness, they and us must have a clear view of who God is. And that's what this text does for us this morning. It continues to clarify for us who God is. R.C. Sproul put it this way. And and if you watch R.C. Sproul speak, how many of you heard R.C. Sproul teach before? Yeah, he's not a hard guy at all. So this may sound hard, but he's got a little smirk with him. He says, what is wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what is wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is. And knowing who God is will make all the difference. That's my best R.C. Sproul impersonation. And man, this text does give us such clarity. So let me read the first four verses this morning. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is best beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, the high priest of Israel. So, a big summary, if you would, of verses 1 through 4 would be, there is a God, there is sin, this sin has created a barrier between God and the people, but God in the Old Testament has made a provision for his Old Testament people, or mediator, if you would, to reconcile the people to God. This priest, this high priest would be a go-between. And then what the writer does, he lays out, if you would, uh, qualifications for a high priest, or I put it in your notes, the job description for a high priest. The first thing he tells us is that a high priest must be a human or humanity. Every high priest, verse 1, chose from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest had to be a human in order to represent humans. Notice that the high priest is selected from among the Jewish people. So no angel could do this job. This is a job required of a man. This man who is chosen can act and plead on behalf of other men. In some ways, this is Judaism 101. He was the only man who could enter the Holy of Holies before God the Father, one human to represent the entire Jewish race. If that sounds familiar to you, it should, because Jesus Christ, the God-man, represents the what? Entire human race. Through him only can you find salvation. Secondly is intermediary or mediator. They both mean the same. I wanted to wise to end up on the end of the word, so I used intermediator. Ari. I, uh, I, I just sort of said that, but I want to say this explicitly because I'm going to come back to it in our so what or application today. 
Um, the high priest's primary work was as a mediator, to act on God's behalf towards men and on man's behalf before God. It was an essential function, if not the core function, of the priesthood. So once a day, on the Day of Atonement, the, the, he was the bridge between God and the people of Israel. Thirdly, or third job description, or third qualification of being a high priest is empathy. Uh, let's reread verses 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So, empathy. So, how many of you have a personal physician? Raise your hand. You have a doctor you go to. Most people, okay. Here's what we wish. We, we, we sort of know that our doctors are good doctors, but the ultimate would be if our doctors are also have what we call bedside manner, right? Good bedside manner, meaning it's one thing to go into a doctor. You know he's a good doctor, and you're telling him your hurts, your pains, your sickness, and he grunts at you and says, uh, nurse, give him this, right, you know. Versus listening to you, asking questions, clarifying, uh, the difference is, is certainly huge. Um, I, I, I have certainly had both. So what the writer is saying here, a Jewish high priest had to have this trait, if you would. It was a part of the job description. He had to be gentle with the wayward and ignorant. Why? The text tells us. Because he himself is also weak and sinful. Now I hope we pause right there and we're not only thinking about the high priest, but we're thinking, of, I know I did, as a pastor, as a Christian, because there is a thing called the priesthood of the believer. This should be a true of all of us. This, this gentle approach with the wayward and the ignorant. Why? Because we too are weak and sinful. And because of that, the scripture tells us that he must first offer sacrifice for his own sins as he goes into the Holy of Holies before he offers sacrifices for the nation. He must understand his sin and therefore he will have empathy toward the people that he represents. Beautiful picture there of the high priest and, and of all of us as Christ followers. He uses this word gentle and this is what it means. It means to take the middle course between apathy and anger. When it comes to sin, we can be apathetic and not care and justify, and then we can just be angry and rage as if we never sin. This high priest is gentle in that he understands his and his people struggle with sin, but he never justifies it or okays it or acts like it's it's good, it's good just sort of do what you please. I, I, I love that definition. So on one hand, the priest cannot act indifferently towards sin, but neither should he be harsh with repentant sinners. Repentant being the key word to turn those who want to turn from their sin since he knew from personal experience how prone he himself is. The next word is ignorant that he uses and Man, just needs some clarification there. This is what we need to remember. 
There was no one in Israel who was supposed to be ignorant of God and his ways. Y'all know that, right? Like the scriptures and, and, and learning about God and who he was. Even the writer of Hebrews says, uh, God has spoken in many ways, Hebrews chapter 1. The prophets, the parents were to teach the children the way of God. Uh, all the yearly and monthly feasts and festivals in the cycle of the Passover celebration should have protected them big picture of being ignorant. And then he uses this word wayward. Remember Isaiah's words, it's true of all of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Not a person here, not a person there who's never been wayward. And here this word wayward means those who have strayed from obeying God, but are trying to get back. These, these are not hardened rebels here. So both being ignorant and wayward of God and with God were not a part of the expectation of the community of faith of the Jews. It just wasn't. They were in some ways spiritual poison. But I thought to myself, man, those two words describe me at times. And those two words describe you at times. Certainly we can be ignorant of what God says. Part of that is our own fault. Part of that could be because we're young in Christ and we just don't know. Matter of fact, in the next passage next week, the writer is sort of going to address that in terms of application. It says, you're dull of hearing. You should have already, you should not be ignorant, is what he's going to tell them of God's ways. But if we're not ignorant, we certainly at times can act like it because of how we live. And then this word wayward, man, Wayward feels daily, a daily drift, a daily fight at least against the drift in terms of what we pursue, what we love, and what we prioritize. So the writer is telling us, though, this high priest must be able to identify with both these struggles, this ignorant, whether it's ignorant you don't know, or ignorant in the way you live, you know but you don't live, or wayward, he must be able to identify with both of these, both in his life and the people's life, without glossing over or saying it's okay. Man, what a huge job qualification. And then lastly is authority, verse 4. Verse 4 says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, the writer tells us a high priest must be called by God, just as Aaron was. He was Israel's first high priest. And, you know, you can't volunteer for the job. You can't apply for the job. You can't get a friend to text in and say, yo, uh, see if they got an opening over there at the high priest at the temple. It doesn't work like that. He had to belong to the tribe of Levi. And, and matter of fact, I want to read to you. It's on your notes. Grab your notes. Numbers 18, 1 through 7. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you, and with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. This should keep guard over you. 
and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they to the altar, lest they and you die. And just the parentheses, there were some who did that, and guess what? They died. Google that. Verse 4, they shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent. And no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons and with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift. And any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now, why do I I read that? I, I want you to get this picture that God is the one that called Aaron as the high priest. And this was a big deal here. Two thoughts as I read that. One is uh, a reminder of the high priest that maybe some of us are familiar with in the first century in the days of Jesus. Remember a guy named Caiaphas? Remember him? He was the guy that uh, was lead over the sham trial of Jesus. Well, he had been appointed by the government of Rome. <laughs> Look, the high priest in this appointment went sideways. It became a political uh, position. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, and so the, the writer of Hebrews sort of overlooks that, but I wanted to remind us to it. But he, what he does as he overlooks it, he brings us back to the original intention of this office of the high priest. And, and second point I want to make is in number 16, this is incredibly crucial here to see how serious God was about him and him only calling, having authority over this choice of the high priest. And number 16, it's called the rebellion of God's people at Korah. The people, you may remember the story, they accused Moses uh, and Aaron of appointing themselves, right, of, to be the leaders. And, and, and here's what God did. He, 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 he didn't like it, so he opened the ground and it swallowed these rebels, and they died, and their households. And when some of the Jewish folks saw God's response, they sort of went off on God. Go back and read it. How dare you? I mean, they went off. And what did God do? He called a, caused a plague to break out, and he killed 14,000 of them. Now, I say that because when it, this authority that it must be called by God and God alone, he's very serious. When he says that, he meant it. So, that's the qualifications, if you would, uh, the job description of a high priest. And as we transition, I want you to remember that the Jews are telling Jewish Christians, we need a high priest. There's no way Jesus could be a high priest. He doesn't fit the job description of a high priest. He's not qualified. How could he represent humans if he is God? He is so far above humans and can never understand what it means to be human. How can he understand the struggle with sin since you've said he is sinless and holy? He lives in bliss where we as humans are continually under assault with the temptation of sin. 
And then secondly, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. There's a problem here. He's from the tribe of Judah. There's never been a high priest that hadn't come from the tribe of Levi. So they make their case, and it seems like a strong case, if you would. But the author of Hebrews turns and shows them that Jesus is not only qualified, he is far superior than Aaron is in every way, form, and fashion. And I love how he does that through verses 5 through 10. So let me read first as we look. And what he does here, he addresses the same things, humanity, empathy, and authority, but he does it in reverse order of authority, empathy, and humanity. And he first addresses this issue of authority in verses 5 and 6. Read with me here. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or we'll call him Mel for short, okay? Authority. The writer makes it crystal clear, if you would, that Jesus, the Son, is being directly commissioned by God, the Father, to be the better and forever high priest. It is the enthroned Son of God who he made the eternal high priest. And here's what he does. He quotes Psalm 2-7. It's the second time that Psalm 2-7 has been quoted in Hebrews. Go back to Hebrew 1-5, where God the Father declared that Jesus was the Son. He acknowledges, yes, Aaron was appointed by God to be the high priest, and now God has appointed his son forever to the office of high priest. That's why authority was so crucial. It has to come from God. Notice that even though Jesus was the son of God, he did not glorify or appoint himself. We know that Jesus was always submitting with obedience to the Father. Jesus wasn't going, I'm the guy. He just did what the Father told him. Then the author quotes Psalm in verse 6, 110, 4. He says, my son is an eternal priest. We know Aaron died, but this priest won't die. He is the forever because it can never be improved upon. And then he mentions this phrase, after the order of Melchizedek. And I don't know about you, you read that and you go, what in the world does that mean? Melchizedek, Genesis 14, you can see his, I think, first place. I think he's mentioned twice in the scripture. Am I right about that, Monty? Monty says yes, so that's good. My Bible man there. So I don't have time to get into Melchizedek. You got to trust me on that. But we're going to get into him full bore in chapter, chapter 7. But what does it mean to be in the order of Melchizedek? Um, it, it basically means this, that Melchizedek was a high priest that had no secession as Aaron. When Aaron died, there was a secession plan. When Monty and I leave fellowship, we have to have a secession plan in place. When a CEO steps down, they have a secession plan. When Dabo Sweeney lost his defensive coordinator, they have a secession plan. You get it? That's the way it works. Melchizedek, there was no secession plan 
as they would have been with Aaron when he passed away. In a sense, the author saying this appointment of the Son of God for the eternal high priest is timeless, just like Melchizedek. The writer in some ways is saying to his Judas, Jude, Jewish audience, read your scriptures. If the Jewish high priest Aaron and his tribe, his successors had authority, how much more does Jesus have? We know Jesus is the king, but now Hebrew declares he also is the priest. And then the second one, not only authority, but empathy. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Empathy. So how could a sinless being ever understand what it's like to be human? That's what's being asked. That's the tension. Surely a sinless human being is far detached. He is remote from our struggles. He's remote from our pain. He can't understand. I don't know about you, but, you know, I do know about you. We've all been through very, very hard times. And there's, there's basically three big picture responses. One when you're going through a painful time in your life and you tell someone, they can be like Job's friends. And they can start giving you advice and telling you why it happened and all the things you should do. How many of y'all like that? No, that don't work, does it? You're thinking, really? Oh, my. Deuces, right? And then you got this second response that is very biblical. People are empathetic. They're saying, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. Thank you for telling me. I want to pray for you. Anything I can do. And you're like, man, you feel the encouragement there, do you not? It's good. But then there's this third response. And this third response is when you sit down with someone eyeball to eyeball and tears running down your face and you're ripping your chest open, you're telling them, man, I'm in pain. This is what's going on. And they look at you and they say, I know exactly what you feel because I've been there. And they tell you and you go, you too? <laughs> and there's something about that that is so powerful. That's empathy at the highest level. The writer here is thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus felt his humanity and his weakness as he sweated drops of blood, as he confronted and con contemplated his death, knowing that for the first time in all of eternity he'll be separated from his Father. So he entered in all the pain that we humans enter. And could experience. Remember he begged his friends to stay with him, to be present with him, to have empathy with him and they fell asleep. He asked the father to take the circumstance away. In darkness he sobbed loud cries to the father searing emotional pain broken groans. The writer uses that scene 
to instruct us and his readers. You say that our high priest, Jesus, is remote, that he's far off, that he can't empathize, that he's is dismissive, that he can't understand us humans? <laughs> Man, you, you, you couldn't have been more wrong. Jesus, our high priest, is fully human and fully God, was no stranger to the human struggle of hardship. I love that. <laughs> and did he hear that God hears Christ, the Christ to save him from death, which is better, really translated, save him out of death? Well, we know Jesus died, but he was for sure taken out of the grave. And the text tells us he was heard because of his, but your will be done submission his reverent submission to the Father, no matter the amount of pain. So we have a better high priest than Jesus. And one reason, he has final authority. He was chosen by God. Secondly, humanity. Or I'm sorry. Secondly, authority, empathy, and then humanity. Verses 8 and 10. Let's read those as we wrap up. <clears throat> Although... Verse 8, he was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So it's pretty clear the author is telling us that he learned obedience through suffering. So what does this mean? We, we, we we got to remember that Jesus never sinned, so he never had to have, be taught a lesson on how not to sin. But it's very clear he learned to obey by our suffering. Because, here's why, before the incarnation, before he came to earth, Jesus had never suffered. He had never obeyed in a sense when it was hard. He never experienced temptation in all that you and I experienced 24-7. He never had to obey in the face of temptation and pain when under assault from the world and the flesh and the devil. So in a sense, when every fiber of his being wanted to protect himself or either glorify himself, he had never known that feeling. He chose not to and he learned obedience through suffering. Man, I was thinking the writer of Hebrews is telling us some wonderful stuff here. And that is this. When Jesus came to earth to experience all that we experience in sin, to experience the Garden of Gethsemane, to experience the cross, etc., he was learning from this experience what it was like to obey his Father. We know that the, the priest of Aaron and his household and his tribe, they failed to learn this critical truth on many occasions. The scripture is full of that. They were sinful like you and I, but Jesus was not only sinless, he demonstrated it as he obeyed in the most difficult time possible. Talk about him understanding the human dilemma of struggling with sin. There's your guy. And then verse 9, 
says he was made perfect, which we know cannot mean nor does not suggest that there was a time when he wasn't perfect. But we do know that over the course of his life as fully human, this perfection which Jesus possessed would, was indeed put to the test. And here we see that his perfection remained 100% intact through all that he experienced this side of heaven. One writer put it this way, said his sufferings tested him and he victoriously endured and attested to his perfection free from failure and defeat. So in light of that, we end with a so what? So what does it mean for us? I went back to that word intermediary or mediator in verse 9, 9 and 10. So here's our so what in application. It says, and this perfection is seen for the basis of our salvation. Verse 9 tells us he became the source of our eternal salvation. At the same time that Jesus became our high priest was the exact time he became the source of salvation for all who would trust him. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. In our world where there are many ways to God and new ones popping up thousands by the month, we come right back to this high priest we have, the one mediator. I don't know about you, but it's pretty clear that Jesus as a high priest is much greater than Aaron. There's no comparison. Matter of fact, I, I, I want to I just show you, because the writer's trying to show Jesus is better than Aaron, right? Write this down. You can read it later. Exodus 32, 19 through 24. That's where Moses, remember when Moses went up on the mountain, did the Ten Commandments, came back down, and there was a golden calf there. <laughs> and, and, and Aaron was in charge of the people of Israel. Moses said, what are you doing? Aaron says, so I, I just told the people, take off your gold. I didn't do anything. I just told them, take your gold off. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it in the fire, out came this big calf. <laughs> That's your high priest. That's why Jesus is better. We will never read nor see or hear anything like that from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but very practically, I need a high priest. I need to be able to approach God often, to flee to him when I sin, when I'm in pain, when I'm confused, 24-7 to receive mercy and help in my time of need. I don't know about you, but the more I pray, the more I want to obey. That's been my personal experience. And the less I pray, the less I want to obey. So I want to encourage us in this new year, this, this, this focus on this upward with God, connecting with God through his word and prayer, to put this proper perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ as this high priest, our mediator, that is there 24-7, and we get on our knees or wherever you pray, and so, Lord Jesus, maybe as simple as I need help. It's a beautiful picture. The Jewish Christians couldn't see that. Sometimes we don't see it, but now we're not ignorant. 
Let me take a minute. You take a minute to ask the question, so what?